ahead and grab a seat, you guys, and get those Bibles out. You can open those Bibles up to Acts chapter 17. I love all the fun friendship we've got going on here. One more announcement before we get into the word. Uh, going to throw this parking guide up. If for anyone that's new here, we're just, uh, we are in the middle of a neighborhood. And so we try to love our neighbors well and help with some of the uh, parking frustrations that come when you bring a couple hundred people in all of a sudden on a Sunday. So here's just a little helpful map. Uh, there we are uh, in the middle uh, and we have uh, trying to keep just in the front of the church accessible parking for the elderly and the disabled. Um, so for the most part, over to that corner there, um, I will just try to keep that for folks that can't walk quite too far. And then the green is all just freebie parking there. We try to help the Nazarene church out by not parking in front of their church. Uh, Pastor Andy's such a great guy. I love that guy. And we have a neat relationship he says, hey, maybe, could you have your guys maybe not park in front of our church on a Sunday? We, we have our greeters out there, and they get so excited when cars park there, and they, and they get ready to greet them, and then and they walk across the street, the Calvary, and so, you know, maybe, and so, oh yeah, totally. So, and then uh, north, uh, north of us there, uh, there's an apartment complex that just asked if we could keep some of their space parking available. They'd appreciate that, and then our immediate neighbor right here to the east uh, has asked if we could leave that open for their family as well. So you don't have to move it now. It's not urgent. Um, but uh, in the future, that'd be helpful as well. And I uh, hope you got your Bibles. You can open up to Acts chapter 17. We've got Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, we can throw the map up there on that missionary journey as we've seen him go all the way through um, up through Macedonia, which was called uh, Europe at the time. It was kind of known as Europe. And uh, you'll remember that uh, they were going through that pink area in the middle called Asia when the Lord was really leading them where not to go. They couldn't go uh, up into Bithynia. They weren't to go south. They couldn't go back. Uh, they were up against the water at Troas there when Paul had a dream of a European Macedonian man calling them to come over and help them. And so he went to help them by preaching the gospel. And, and just the last few chapters of the book of Acts have been the great stories of city by city, Paul going through Macedonia, getting persecuted, coming under uh, great persecution from especially the Jews who would just raise up mobs to, you know, chase them out of town. And so Paul would have to flee and he's fled down into the green there, the region of Achaia. Uh, you'll see Athens on the right. Athens is a familiar uh, city to many of us. It's, um, we're aware of a lot of the history of Athens and, and then even the Olympic Games and all those wonderful things of Greece. And, uh, and we've seen his uh, ministry in chapter 17 there to Athens as he was walking around the city waiting for his friends to join him. And as he walked around, he saw that the city was given over to idols. And he was greatly uh, exasperated by this and was greatly disturbed by this and his soul was stirred within him with godly jealousy that these people who'd been made in the image of God to display the glory of God and have relationship with God have been giving their hearts over to dumb stone wooden and marble objects that ears they hear but they cannot hear eyes they have but they cannot see they don't do anything for you you do everything 
for them and they're just blocks, dumb blocks, you know. And Paul just was greatly annoyed by this. And so uh, he, he did something. We've seen uh, four things in, the, in Athens here. What Paul saw, he saw a city that was given over to idols or we saw last week that, um, that they were underneath idolatry. Uh, idols had basically uh, the, their foot on the neck of the Athenians. Someone said that it was easier to meet a god than a man in Athens as they just had you know, thousands of gods just all over the place, statues and marbles and temples and all kinds of things. And uh, one man put it that they were gluttons for gods, you know, and, and Paul just couldn't handle it anymore, so he did something. So we see what Paul saw, he saw idolatry. We saw what Paul felt, he felt uh, exasperated and annoyed that God wasn't getting the glory due to his name. And so we saw him do something. He began to preach the gospel. He began to go into the synagogues. He began to go into the marketplaces. He went where the people were. And he preached the gospel of Jesus to all who happened to be there. And as he preached, people were hearing him. Different philosophers who, uh, Athens was known for its philosophy, and especially the Epicureans, the kind of the, let's eat and drink and experience pleasure for tomorrow we die. And the Stoic philosophers who were more tight-lipped about life and just were about, let's endure through it, let's just get through this. Uh, But still no hope as any God that they would believe in was just a far-off, separated God. And so Paul began to speak. He spoke to these philosophers, and uh, they began to listen. And there was some interest in this, or there was some noticing of this, so that we're in verse 18, that these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler say? It's an interesting phrase that they use about Paul there, a babbler. I know I've heard that some of you use this phrase to describe someone in this church. Not very kind, right? Uh, A babbler, right? Babbler, uh, it actually speaks of a, like a bird of predatory bird or a scavenger type bird, a seed picker of a bird. Someone called it being bird brained, you know, and it was just this idea of these scattered ideas and thoughts and that this individual really had no original ideas of their own. And so he's coming into Athens and he's just got this strange stuff. And it's really just like a hodgepodge of something that a bird would, you know, have come out of them after they just picked any sort of seed that was around. And, uh, and so they called him this seed picker, this bird brain, this babbler, this lazy man who just kind of hangs around and doesn't help his host is kind of what, uh, the babbler would also speak of. And, uh, but they also kind of add, it's interesting that they say that he doesn't have any original ideas of his own because He's going to preach the resurrection of Jesus, which is something that is so original, it just blows their mind. It's a little spoiler alert for what the message goes on to say. But we'll see that right here, where it says, he seems to be, seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Do you think you'd get that from Paul's message about Jesus? A proclaimer of foreign gods. And because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So there was something original to his message, this Jesus and this resurrection. Now, this foreign gods is the word in the Greek, diamonia, which sometimes speaks of demons, but it could also be used to speak of lesser gods, or in this case, foreign divinities that they weren't familiar with. And it's possible that the Athenians here were trying to grasp 
with the essence of Paul's message. And uh, when they speak of Jesus and the resurrection in the Greek, they thought that they may have that Paul may have been introducing Athens to a, just a whole couple of new divinities, maybe a male god called Jesus, and maybe his female companion known as Anastasis in the Greek. Anastasis and resurrection are very similar in the language. Chrysostom, the third century preacher, was one of the first to make this suggestion, and a lot of commentaries follow him on this. But F.F. Bruce, the historian, goes further and writes this, quote, In the ears of some frequenters of the Agora in Athens, these two words, Jesus and resurrection, sounded if they denoted the personified and deified powers of healing and restoration. So there, when you really get into like the original culture that was receiving from Paul right now and hearing for, from Paul, in just a minute it's going to say, we're hearing some strange new things from you. And they can't quite put their finger on it. Is it a man? Is it a movement? Is it a miracle? What is it? And it's interesting, Dr. Conrad Gempf pointed out that Paul's speeches to pagans seem to have been the result of misunderstanding. Uh, the Athenians imagined two whole new gods, a, a god and his female companion, while the Lystrans, if you remember them from back in chapters uh, 13 and 14, they see two old gods that maybe came back uh, back to them. So there's just the pagans get confused a little bit when they're hearing of this Jesus and the resurrection. Now, it can't be said enough, we're going to see it right here and later on in the chapter, that you cannot bring up the resurrection of Jesus enough when you're preaching the gospel. Okay, this is something that all of the gods out there and all of the different religions out there, they've got all of this rules, regulations, and rituals on it, but they don't have the power of the gospel of a dying God coupled with that God bodily resurrecting from the dead. Even the Athenians, with all of their Greek mythology, had, like the Gnostics, an understanding that, oh, there was a spirit world and that your spirit would live on, you know? Or perhaps like Celine Dion with the Titanic, my heart will go on or something like that. But they didn't have the bodily resurrection. I mean, they thought all matter was evil anyways. So why would we want our body to resurrect from the dead? And we understand that God with great intention created matter for the purpose of his own glory. And so if he can redeem it from the curse of sin and death and resurrect it back to life, this is stellar, you guys. So for Jesus to be the first one to rise from the dead, the Greeks hear this and they're like, man, Homer and the Simpsons, or Homer and the Odyssey, you know, all that, they don't, we don't have anything like this. And so, uh, and so when they hear this, this is a strange new thing. Do we even want this? Would we want to resurrect from the dead? And, uh, and, and so just beginning with this, and you notice that all throughout Acts, I encourage you, I have a little R in my Bible next to every time throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection is preached in the gospel sharing. And then you can't stop there. You go through the epistles and put a little R next to all the time the resurrection is mentioned. They didn't preach just Jesus crucified, but Jesus resurrected. He's alive today, and the same resurrection power is upon all of us who believe. And so it's exciting stuff. And to the Greeks, this is some strange new doctrine to them. And so uh, look in verse 19. They took him, and it, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not something, oh, maybe he was arrested, but it doesn't seem like he's giving some sort of a defense like, like he'd been arrested here. 
And they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. So uh, don't get freaked out. Sometimes in the Bible, you read words that are new to you, such as Areopagus, and you just turn off, right? I'm the same way, farm kid, like shoot stuff and ride stuff. And, you know, and then you read and I'm like, I'm going to read good today. Area, oh, um, we're done. You know, so it, it's wonderful. Google's helpful with this kind of stuff. Areopagus, okay? Uh, we got a couple pictures of you for you today of the Areopagus. The word Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares, okay? And uh, the Greek was the equivalent of Mars. So the hill of Mars, or modern day kind of what we say is Mars Hill. If you've ever heard of Mars Hill, uh, it comes from this phrase, uh, from this rather location of this hill in Athens. It was situated a little bit north of the Acropolis. So here's the Acropolis, this great rocky outcropping uh, there in Athens. And then just north was like the, the supreme court building um, of, uh, of, of Athens, or really of Greece. Now, sometimes in this court, criminal cases would be tried. Although by this point in Athens history, it, there wasn't so much the criminal stuff happening. It was more everyone bringing their new ideas to talk philosophy. So everyone had a nice beard and they'd all rub the beard and they'd all sit back and they'd listen to each other talk as they rub their goatee uh, or their beard. So now by Paul's day, it was really more of a council and, and it was known as kind of the royal porch of the Agora. And, and as he met there with them, they just straight up said, hey, we want to know this new doctrine of which you speak. Verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. We're hearing about this Jesus. We're hearing about the resurrection. We're not quite sure if you're talking about like healings and stuff or an actual goddess that's, that's name is resurrection. So we want to know what's going on. This message of one God who became man and who died for the sins of his creation and then rose from the dead and ever lives to redeem his creation from sin and from death. This was capturing the attention of Greek thinkers who thought they had heard it all. I mean, this is something that is really capturing their mind. And so it says there that these Athenians and the foreigners who were there in verse 21 spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing. So they would have loved our coffee shops these days. You know, they would have loved just those places where you can just chill and talk, maybe like a hookah bar or something like that, you know, or smoke a pipe and just sit back and philosophize, you know, and just hear and tell new thing after new thing after new thing. And by the way, there's a great saying among theologians for biblical Christianity, and it goes this way. If it's new, it's not true. Okay? So that's very helpful for us as we have uh, the canon of scripture in our hands. We have the word of God. We have God's revelation of himself towards us. And so in these days, there's all kind the interwebs and everything else going on. You can find any weird thing that, that you want out there. And I'm just telling you, if it's some new strange thing, then it's not true and it's strange and you can run away from it. So let's be people of the book and by the book. Uh, Ratzinger, 
the Pope who retired wrote a book called Light of the World, and he has a foreword written in it by a clevered man named George Vigel. In this introduction of the book, we're told that the world is a world that has lost its story. And I think the philosophers of this day had realized that. We're living in a world that's lost his story, and they're trying to figure out uh, figure it out. And uh, Vigel said in his forward, humanity is viewed as a collection of cosmic chemical accidents, a humanity with no intentional origin, no noble destiny, and thus no path to take through history. And so the philosophers of Athens, as well as so many in our day and age, in our schools and in our educational systems, we're just trying to figure out where did we come from Where are we going and how do we get there? But we're being fed a bed of lies that isn't bringing the hope to this. And so the philosophers of Athens, they're going to be hearing where we came from, where we're going and how to get there. And the people in our day and age want to hear the same thing. Colossians tells us to not be listening to vain philosophies. It says, beware lest anyone cheat you through uh, philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. And our world has just been sucked dry by vain and worthless philosophies. And I fear for people that take those philosophy classes because so many times they're just missing the mark. Because it does, it's not driving them to Jesus. There's a famous song from the 60s, and Doris Day made it popular. In the main chorus of the song, you probably know this part, just says, Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. And it just means whatever will be, will be. And that was the Epicureans, that was the Stoic philosophers, and all they had was, we got nothing. You know, we're just blobs of cells floating around. So just, you know, eat, drink for tomorrow we die. Pleasure, live for pleasure or tighten up the jaw and get ready to take the punches because there's nothing. I mean, in the end, we just die and we got nothing. And uh, Paul's going to bring a message that that is vain philosophy, you guys. There's a creator. There's a future. There's the hope of heaven. There's a judgment for sin. And there's someone who will redeem us and help us get there and, and rescue us from said judgment. So, Uh, Here we have Paul beginning to address uh, the Areopagus there. Um, As we get into this, some students are critical of Paul's address uh, because you're not going to see the mention of the cross of Christ or you're going to see just a few converts. And uh, and I think as you study that those criticisms are just, um, they're pretty weak. Because to preach a resurrection, uh, you've got to preach a crucified Lord. Um, You know, we have a two-minute read here, but no doubt Paul's message was greater than two minutes or less as we read it. No doubt the Paul we know preached the crucified Jesus, and uh, the resurrection was because of said dead Jesus, okay? Uh, And then it's, it's a terrible practice to judge the effectiveness of a ministry on how many converts you've seen in a day. You read missionary biographies and you see some guys, you know, they're going out there to the, the deserts and the jungles and the Congos and the, you know, and it is a labor of nearly zero converts until they pass away. And as uh, the next missionary comes in, he reaps a harvest. Just as Paul says, one man plants, 
And another man waters, and the Lord is the one who gives the increase. So I think these criticisms, and many of us don't necessarily have that as we read it, but I remember the last time I taught this in a home group, that there was just this, I don't even know why we're reading this, because this is just really poor evangelism on Paul's part. It's a horrible example of how to be an evangelist. And I was like, whoa, I know I don't do it much better, you know. And so, uh, and so we have Paul come to this informal inquiry of the education commission who regarded him with slightly contemptuous indulgence. That's how John Stott put it. So let's get into it. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And man, this is just a great way to just begin your confrontation with idolatry man so many times you come in with the megaphone and the blow horn and just blow it into the individual's ears i don't know if you've ever been to like a a concert up in the portland area or something and you got the guys that are just there with the blow horn and maybe there's a place for that but read the room right a lot of times it just turns ever so tact it's good to be tactful and just be led by maybe maybe there's times the blow horn is needed okay uh, but also tactful. And so Paul stands here in Athens and he says, he says, uh, uh, men, men of Athens, I'm noticing something as I walk around here. I can tell by all of the statues and all of the temples and all of the, all of the marble and all of the stone cuttings that, that show different gods. I've noticed that it's easier to meet a God around here than a man. I've noticed your gluttons for God. I'm going to throw this out there. I've noticed that you're very spiritual. That's just a nice way for them to be like, yeah, you know, this guy has been paying attention, right? Oh, yeah, okay, so he's got a read on us. Uh, the King James Version puts it uh, in a way that's... Uh, Who's the, who's the blind guy that plays the piano? Stevie Wonder, right? Very superstitious, right? Um, that's how, that's how uh, the King James Version puts it. Men, in, I, men of Athens, I perceive that you are too superstitious, okay? And there are people in your world and in, in mine that you get to know them out in the community, and they're not necessarily agnostics, and they're not necessarily atheists, but they're just a little bit of, just very worldly, uh, into the new age stuff, you know, and they're spiritual people. Um, and you go to the Eugene area, or you go down to the Mount Shasta city, you know, or you go down to weed, or you go around and you get into these different communities in these pockets. And it is tangible that there's a presence of darkness there because these people, they're not necessarily atheists. They're going the other way and they're worshiping anything and everything that lives, moves, walks, breeds or or you know ruffles a leaf in the wind you know or something like that and so they they would be categorized in this as very superstitious or very spiritual or very religious and by the way many times being very religious isn't a good thing if your hope is built upon your following of rules and your attendance of rituals and and your adherence to just regulation and that is where you find your righteousness before God, then read the book of Romans, read the book of Galatians, you guys, you're going to find that your mouth is going to have to be shut. You're going to be found a liar because you can never measure up by the works of your own flesh. You got to rest on Jesus Christ, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and his righteousness, right? And so, but he, you know, but he's, he's catering to them for a minute. He's, 
being respectful to them for a moment. And he says to them, hey, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. It said, to the unknown God, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. And so this is just genius. You know how we've been talking lately about in our evangelism, you find that common touch point with people that you can use that to bring the gospel in and show that it is relevant to their life and to their situation. So just ask the Lord for eyes to see that because Paul, he sees God, 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 God. And here we see on this stupa or on this pedestal, Right over here, we see that the Athenians claim a level of ignorance. They realize they don't have it all figured out, that there's something still to be grasped, and there's this God out there, and we don't know him. And he says, that's who I want to talk to you about today. You got all this, and I'm telling you, it's too much. Let's just go to this simple one. There's one that you don't even know. Um, the Athenians built this idol to this unknown God. Some said for fear of missing a blessing or receiving a punishment. And so Paul started with this point of interest and he got the interest of his listeners. William McDonald said, Paul found in that inscription, a point of departure for his message. The apostle saw in the inscription, the recognition of two important facts. First, the fact of the existence of a God, they believed that, And second, the fact that the Athenians knew they were ignorant of him. It was then very normal and natural transition for Paul to enlighten them concerning the true God. And I love this part from McDonald. As someone has said, he turned the wandering stream of their piety into the right channel. And I think that that's needed for us today as well. Because again, there is a hodgepodge of anything and everything spiritual out there. But if it doesn't line up with the scripture, it's false and it's leading you to hell. And so the Lord is able to take us and to take our thirst for a God and our hunger for a God because we were created to know God and he wants to take all of our streams and all of our meanderings and he wants to say, okay, enough of this. Let's bring it into just this, Jesus He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. John Stott tells us that reference to these types of altars inscribed to an unknown God have been found in ancient literature. Pausanias, for example, who traveled extensively around 175 AD and wrote in his tour of Greece, admiring accounts of the glory, history, and mythology of that country, He began his itinerary in Athens, landing on the rocky peninsula called Piraeus, five miles southwest of Athens. He found near the harbor a number of temples together with altars of the gods named unknown. And so uh, he takes this opening courteous remark about their religiosity and points them to this unknown God. Now, if I can give you a little more history about this, there's a book called eternity in their hearts. I don't know if you've heard of this. Eternity of their hearts basically goes around the world to the different tribes and the different tongues and the different people groups. And this research shows that throughout history, 
these people have some knowledge of a creator, some sort of a flood story, and some sort of an understanding that, you know, like Romans 1 says, we just know that we are sinners and we need to be redeemed uh, so that we can know our creator. And there's all kinds of stories about there. And we've, we've had this happen with our Nepal missions, our contacts over there where angels have appeared, maybe even Jesus himself, and have told these natives that, uh, that they're sinners and that someone is coming and he's going to tell them about how to be forgiven of their sin and how to uh, be reconciled to their creator. Well, in this book, Eternity in Their Hearts, there's a whole chapter on Athens and how about 400 years before Paul came there, the Athenians had a great plague come through. And as this plague came through, women, children, men, they were just dying by the droves. And the philosophers all gathered up on Mars Hill in this very place and said, we need a rescue plan. We need some sort of a prophet to come and tell us how to be saved from this plague. And one man said, I know a guy from Crete, uh, Epimendes, and he seems to have some history with this kind of stuff. And they said, go get him. So they go, they get Epimendes, they bring him back. And Epimendes says, uh, he says, well, you have so many gods, but I fear one thing, that the God that that you're missing has the cure for this plague. And so they said, well, what should we do? And he said, you're going to need to get um, a number of sheep, get them really hungry over a couple days. Don't feed them, like starve them. And then bring them out in the morning. We're going to let them loose. And if they go around and they eat the grass, that's not good. We want the sheep, these starving sheep, to go to the God's altar and to rest at the altar. And it's that God that's going to heal us from uh, from the plague. And so... uh, and so they went, uh, they let these sheep out in the morning and the sheep first started kind of grazing and then they stopped grazing and they all went over and they began to rest in spots where there was, there was no God. Uh, there were no idols there. And so Epimendes said, uh, get the masons and have them build altars wherever these sheep are laying and then slaughter those sheep and sacrifice those sheep to what we will call the unknown God. And so this was about four centuries, maybe six, some accounts say six centuries before Paul was there. And over that course of time, uh, those altars to the unknown God had crumbled and fallen. And, uh, and there had just recently been a movement before Paul to restore those altars, uh, to restore especially this altar. In the third century, there's an account from an Athenian that tells this story, that it was this unknown God that brought the healing from the plague that saved the Athenians. And so what Paul does in sharing about the unknown God, he's prompting their memory to go back, go back in history about 400 years. And you'll remember that it was this God that saved you from the plague, that saved your women, that saved your children, that saved your men. And it's that same God who will save you from the curse of sin and the plague that is destroying all of mankind. So it's just incredible history and it's genius evangelism that Paul shares here. Now, in this sermon that Paul has, he proclaims five facts about the one true God. He proclaims this living, true God 
and exposes the errors that they have and even the horrors of their own idolatry. Okay, so uh, in verse 24, we see the first point of his message. God who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the first part of his message is that God is a creator of everything. The God that Paul preached is the creator of everything. He's the Lord of everything. This view of the world is very different from either what the Epicurean philosophers uh, emphasized, which was chance and a combination of atoms and Uh, or even what the Stoics philosophized about, virtual pantheism. Instead, Paul preaches a God who is both a personal creator of everything that exists, and he's also a personal Lord of everything that he has made. Missionaries out there will tell you that one of the greatest and first start points as you're sharing the gospel is to talk about the account of creation, and that's where Paul began with the men of Athens. And he tells them that this God who created, because he's the Lord of his creation, he's the Lord of heaven, he's the Lord of earth, he's not a guy that dwells in the temples made by his creation. We see this in Acts chapter 7 verses 44 through 50 in uh, Stephen's first message there before he's martyred. And he says it uh, even in verse 48, Acts 7, 48, however, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So they've been building temples all over the place that they have you know, forced their gods to go live in. And Paul says, you know what? God created everything, including you, and he's the master and the ruler of it all. He doesn't, he's not restricted into, restricted into a box made by his own creation. It was thought that said any attempt to limit or localize the creator God or to imprison him within the confines of buildings, structures, or concepts which originate with human beings is ludicrous. What are ways that we attempt to do that? We know the God of the Bible, and yet we want him to conform to our image and to be a God that satisfies our longings and our desires and uh, essentially serves us, uh, and we would then in place become the God. In verse 25, it says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Now we know we worship him with our hands. That's a biblical thing, but it's not like he needs anything. It's not like he is required uh, for us to make him these offerings so that he can be stronger or that he can survive. Um, So this is our second point. So first of all, he's the creator. And secondly, he's the sustainer. The God that Paul preaches, the sustainer of life, not worshiped with man's hands as if he need anything. Uh, This explanation from Paul is of the one true living God's completely different than the pagan gods that the Greeks worshiped and served. All of those gods were dependent upon human hands for survival, human hands that would build temples for them, human hands of the temple priest to provide food and necessities. But the one true living God that Paul preaches was not dependent on human hands or human beings. He's self-sufficient in and of who he is. He himself is the source of all life, all breath, all things. 
The false gods need men to survive, but in contrast, we men need this one true living God uh, to survive. Again, Stott, it's absurd to suppose that he who sustains life should himself need to be sustained. That he who supplies our need should himself need our supply. Any attempt to tame or domesticate God, to reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent on us for food and for shelter, is again a ridiculous reversal of roles. We depend on God and he does not depend on us. And so just ask the Lord today, Lord, how have I reversed the roles? How have I become God and exchanged the roles here? How have I uh, treated you as some sort of pet that I need to provide for you in? In verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of your dwelling. So the third part, he's uh, the sovereign ruler of all the nation. All men came from one blood, Adam. And it was at Babel that all of these various nations and tongues uh, spread across the face of the earth. And in God's sovereignty, out of this one man and his family, he's determined throughout history the pre-appointed times and the different boundaries of their dwellings. Now, this is applicable to the culture Paul's preaching to you because the Epicurean philosophers believe that everything happened by random chance. They had no God in their system who was sovereign, so they believed the outcome of everything was just questionable and random. And God speaks of a very sovereign God in control who's involved in the affairs and the deeds of men. And this sovereign, powerful God has determined with great forethought that every nation of man has this pre-appointed time and boundaries of their dwelling. The New International Version says, he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. The New Living Translation says, He decided beforehand which should rise and fall, and He determined their boundaries. God, responsible for having established nations and giving them their racial identity and putting them in their specific geographic locations and determining the extent of their conquest, telling them they can go no further. God sovereignly moves over the nations, the kings, and their boundaries. Now, I've always kind of felt like I was born a little after my time. Like I should have maybe been born in the early 1900s is maybe what I've kind of always felt. Like somewhere between like the Wild West days, you know, where horses were still used and there was all kinds of like great manners and customs like that, but also a little bit of technology coming in, kind of that World War I generation or so. I'm always like, oh, that would have been, that would have been like my spot. Like the Lord totally messed up. But Acts chapter 17 tells us that no, Rory Rogers was put Born in 1981 in Klamath Falls to the family that he was born to and all of in the United States and all of this, I put Rory right in the spot where he's supposed to be for the purpose. Did you catch that? Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. 
And so the purpose of all of these pre-appointed times that I was born in the year and the location and the nation that I was supposed to be born in, just like you and everyone else in the world, God sovereignly has put them there so that, that they would seek for God where they're at and perhaps find them. Now, you got to love that phrase. The New Living Translation says his purpose in all of this was that the nation should seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. The Revised Standard says that they, that people feel after him, and it's a verb that denotes the groping and stumbling and fumbling of a blind man. Okay, and so you see, there's something interesting here. If you're into soteriology and you know that there is predestination, there is election, there is God's sovereign aspect in salvation, and in that. He put people where they were supposed to be in the nations they were supposed to be so that this could happen. And then on the other side, man's responsibility of he has put eternity in their hearts. He has put in their hearts that desire to know their creator. They're made in the image of God to be in relationship with God. And just throughout history, men have been stumbling around and groping to find God that maybe perhaps they ought to find him. And Paul tells them that this unknown God wants to be known. God has had an objective in revealing himself as the creator and as the sovereign ruler of the nation that men might seek after him. A country is born and it's divinely born. As it falls, it divinely falls. And as its borders increase or decrease, it's because of God's sovereignty. And it's all with a missionary intent that people would grope for God and know God. And we don't have the time to get into this, but apply that to all the stuff that goes on in the world and all the confusion of why certain nations get to encroach and take land from other people. And you look at missionary movements whenever that even happens. And though there's sinful men that are involved in the process, there's also godly people that are going out during those times and they're sharing the gospel as borders go out over other lands. Missionary movements happens and native people start getting saved and start getting to know Jesus. And God in his sovereignty is able to do what he says to Habakkuk. I'm going to do something through even wicked people, it's going to make your ears tingle because I'm going to use just sinful men to propagate my glory throughout the whole world. Okay, there's a lot there. I've got a minute and 59 seconds, so put that in your pipe. And Okay, you know. But God is near. God is near is what Paul's getting to. To the Athenians, you're missing him. Come to this unknown God, and I'm making you known. I'm making him known to you that his name is Jesus. In verse 28... It's this Jesus, it's this unknown God that you haven't known yet. It's in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And so Paul, great use here of just knowledge. He uses that prophet Epimendes who came over from Crete and brought the healing of that plague as the prophet that he quotes right here to show that that unknown God is the one that sustains all of human life. He's not only our creator, but he's our environment. He is near. He is omnipresent. And he also quotes another prophet of theirs, or another philosopher of theirs, Aratus, who says, we are his offspring. Verse 28, and we'll have the worship team come on up. Or rather, verse, uh, verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that is shaped by art and man's devising. 
Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It's so the grace of the Lord here, knowing that the history of humanity has been de-godding God and worshiping idols and things that are not God's and falling and following after created things rather than the creator. And in all of that, he has been gracious. In all of that, he's been turning people's hearts toward the savior that would come, that if they would look forward to that savior, they could be saved. And even though they're in a time of ignorance, God overlooked it. Even though they were in a place of unaware because of a a lack of revealed information or knowledge, God overlooked it. The King James Version put that he winked at it. I don't know that that's totally maybe the best translation, but he didn't punish it. Stott says it. It's not that he didn't notice it or that he didn't treat it as inexcusable, but that in his forbearing mercy, he did not bring upon it the judgment that is deserved. So all of that ignorance, it's culpable today because today you know the truth that there is one God. He's involved in the, in the, the affairs of man and he loves you and he died for you and you have no more excuse. Give your heart and your life over to him because he is worthy to live for. And the beautiful thing that's a cherry on top of the Sunday is he wants all the best for you. And he has created a place for you to be in paradise with him for all forever and to enjoy his presence forevermore. In verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. So the fifth point is that he is the judge of the world. He will judge the world. And so this spoke right to the ignorance of the philosophers. So far, we've heard where we've come from. So far, we've heard where we're going, that there's judgment. And we've heard how we get there. It's by faith in this God who is intimately involved in the, in the redemption of mankind. There will be a judgment. Who will judge? It'll be the man, Jesus. And to prove it, God rose him from the dead. The fact that he's alive, and great historians have said it, is the best proved fact of all of history. Do some research And if you're a critic with an open mind and an open heart, you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus is alive. And Paul tells us that that living Jesus will judge the world. And when they heard of the resurrection, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they're listening this whole time. This all sounds pretty incredible, but man, he just brought up that resurrection thing again. It says that some mocked and others said, We'll hear you again on this matter. So there's two responses to this message of Paul, and it kind of all boils down to this great pinnacle of it, the resurrection of Jesus. The first reaction was mocking. Some translation says that they sneered at him, or the JB translation says that they burst out laughing. I mean, this resurrection was really an incredible idea. But the other response to it was belief. And said, you know what, we'll hear you again on this. In verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. Doesn't appear that this was some sort of legal defense that he had to point, counterpoint, and then, you know, a judgment is made on him that, okay, he's innocent, let him go, or he's justified, or or anything like that. Um, No, he just is able to depart from this conversation that he had with the philosophers. However, some men joined him and believed. And we have the name of some of them. Among them were... Dionysius the Areopagite. Big words, I know, crazy names. 
But you know what's incredible of this? Dionysius, uh, Dionysius was one of the council from the Areopagus. He was one of these main men up on this Supreme Court, and he was one that believed. And then another one, a woman named Damaris. Dionysius, it was believed to be one of the first martyrs in Athens, but also one of the first pastors in Athens. And Damaris, an, an incredible disciple there. As you guys want to stand with me as we close, these last couple weeks have just been so good to have conversations with you all and to be letting the Lord examine our hearts to see if there's any idolatry in our hearts, any way that we've been a glutton for other gods. And I think that there's been good conviction on us to be turning away from those things that have had our passion, that have had our heart, that have had our time. And I'm talking to the extreme to where God gets none of it or that God gets less of it. And there's been great, great repentance these weeks through that home groups and conversations around the tables. And maybe even today, though, there's a place for repenting of just being super spiritual people, but not following the God as our God as he's revealed himself to us in scripture. He's been less than this to us been very spiritual people following after all kinds of things and all manners of enlightenment but we've been we've been departing from the scriptures we've been departing from the creator we've been departing from the sustainer we've been departing from the judge we don't believe that we're going to be judged so we just go ahead and live our lives as we want And in all of these ways that Paul spoke to us, we can come back and say, oh, creator, you created me with a purpose, a purpose that I would know you. And I've run away from you, but I've worshiped other gods. But today I'm hearing that I need to come back. I need to come to you who, it's in you that I live. It's in you that I move. It's in you that I have my being. I hear today that you're a resurrected God, that you rose from the dead, and that was after you died for me. And even as we just move to prayer, you can just pray out to the Lord and repent and turn away from just being spiritual, empty spirituality, or turn away today from vain philosophies and worldviews. And with humility say, no, Lord, I want to come back to Creator. God who's involved in life, the God who sustains life, the God who has put me where I'm supposed to be in this time and place that I can find him. And by grace, I've found him today. The God that will judge sinners. And by God's mercy, he he stood in judgment for me. So today, as we just close out, we repent and we turn from our idols. We cast them down. We topple them over. And Lord, you know the big ones, Lord. We ask that you would come into our lives and just, would you help with that? Would you topple them over? Would you break their hands off, break their heads off, crumble them down to powder, blow them away like chaff, Lord. Let them not have power over us anymore. 
just want to give a place today. Maybe for the first time, for those of you that are here, and this would be the first time in your life that you've realized that God has been pursuing you and He wants you to know Him and He's shown you your sin and that you're in need of a Savior. He's just been showing you that you need to be saved. That you need to give your heart and your life over to Jesus. You need to turn from your sins and your worldviews and you need to surrender to Him. To the authority of the Bible in your life. And you want that hope of heaven and eternity and paradise with Him. I just want to give you a chance today to be like a a Dionysius and a Damaris, two people we read of that it was known that they became Christians that day. Is there anybody here today that that's you? Today, God in his love has shown you your sin, but he's shown you a great savior. And today you want your sins forgiven and you want the hope of heaven. And you want to be numbered with Dionysius, Damaris, and all else who would name the name of Christ and be numbered with the saved. If that's you today, I just want to ask you to lift up your hand and I want to pray for you. The Lord sees you. Praise the Lord. Just as you lift up your hand, just rejoice right now. The Lord sees you too. Praise God. Isn't it wonderful what we read that God put you right here in Prineville in 2022 and put you with the people that you're around and the job that you're in and to be part of the United States and all of this and all of it was what he knew what you needed to get you to ponder him and think of him and want him and to draw you near and to even get you to Calvary Prineville today so that you could find him and have your sins forgiven and have the assurance of heaven over your heart. Anybody else today? You just want to raise your hand up and say, thank you, Lord. That's me. Oh, I just felt so strongly today that the Lord wants to save you. I even wore a t-shirt underneath my shirt. It was too cold in here to wear it, but it says, you must be born again. It's the words of Jesus. And you might be trying to navigate life. No, 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 I must just be a good person. Or no, 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 by the end of my life, I must just have done it, done more good than bad, and hopefully my good outweighs my bad, and forget all of that, it'll never happen. Maybe today you come here, you've just been resting in your spirituality, I'm just a very spiritual person, and you know what, the Bible says you're too superstitious, you gotta drop that, you need to be born again, I need to take out your stone cold heart, and I need to replace it with a heart that is alive, that beats and knows God. Anybody else, you'll join these two sisters who've raised their hand to be numbered with Dionysius and Damaris today. I'll pray for you. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. How wonderful in the midst of all the philosophers, Dionysius stood up on Mars Hill and said, I confess Jesus right here, right now, the resurrected Jesus, 
as my God. Anybody else today, you just stand where you're at. And all, all I want to do is I want you to be numbered with the, with the believers today. I'm going to pray for those that have raised their hand. Just cry out to the Lord just like a little kid praying, talking to their dad. Just pray this prayer after me and maybe you just, you might raise your hand as we're praying this and just be numbered. Say, Lord, I hear today that I'm a sinner and I hear today that you're a great savior. So do the saving. Wash away my sins. Cleanse my mind from an evil conscience. Lord, set my life in order that I could serve you. Restore where my sin has destroyed. Redeem my life out of the miry pit, out of the quicksand. Set me upon stability today. The stable rock of Jesus. Help me to live for you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.